Welcome to a great day for Hockey Talk. Brought to you by our founding partner, PPG, official paint of the Penguins. Here's Paul Steigerwald. Hello again, everybody, and welcome once again to It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. I'm Paul Steigerwald. One of the most colorful Pittsburgh-born sportscasters in the country never worked in the Pittsburgh market, but he's certainly a byproduct of it. John Butchergrass has worked at ESPN since 1996. One of the most colorful and quirky guys you'll ever see, and yet extremely knowledgeable and unbelievably good at what he does, which includes calling hockey games, calling the Frozen Four, and the World Cup on ESPN, and maybe someday NHL hockey. He is so popular that he has 500,000 followers on Twitter, where his handle is Main. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Bucci, John Bucci-Gross. First of all, Bucci, thanks a lot for doing this. We really appreciate it. Uh, I happened to do a little research on you. I, you know, I had to do that. I wanted to get to know you a little bit better, and now I feel like I know you a lot more than I did, obviously, when I met you uh, earlier this fall down at uh, Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, your hometown. Um, that was an interesting event we were part of with Colby Armstrong and Brian Trottier and Phil Bork and myself and you, and it was really, uh, I thought, a, a really neat affair. Um, and I watched your commencement speech at Heidelberg University in 2017, which was really a great speech. And at the beginning of it, you said you were adopted, and you were born in Allegheny General Hospital. So could you just kind of take me through a little bit of that, your life, uh, starting with your birth here in, in the Pittsburgh and then uh, taking you eventually to where you are today? Yeah, I don't know much. I don't know anything about my really biological uh, mom. Uh, just a couple of notes that I've been able to acquire throughout the years. Uh, but from what I can decipher from a little interview she gave to the Catholic Charities of, uh, of Pittsburgh when she was uh, going through the adoption process, obviously she got pregnant at a young age. seemed like, like she was about 19 years old, came from a very poor family. Again, this all from this interview that she gave to the Catholic Charities. Her dad was a truck driver, big family, Irish Catholic family. And uh, I guess she, got, she had gotten pregnant from a, a chemical engineer, student. He, I guess, was in graduate school. He was half Italian, half Polish. Uh, you can see that's very Pittsburgh. I'm a big <laughs> melting pot. <laughs> that's and, awesome. uh, so, yeah, so she gave me up for adoption. I was born in Allegheny General Hospital, and about six months later, a couple who had come from Boston to get trained to be a manager at Sears and Roebuck Company uh, came to, uh, to get trained, thought they'd probably be there for a couple of years, go back to Boston, where they were born and raised, but they ended up staying in western PA, eastern Ohio, for 25, 30 years, and were unable to have children of their own. So they adopted four of us every two years uh, while in Pittsburgh. And uh, and that's kind of how my life started. I'm thankful for my, obviously, for my birth mother for going through that. It must be a terrible process, to, especially back then in the mid-60s, to give up a child and go through that process. And then, so just to be, be lucky that happened. And then the second, obviously, huge stroke of luck were the, the parents that did adopt me. That's also a crapshoot. That can go either way in many ways. And I couldn't have had two better parents who are still alive, 88 years old, living in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And uh, so, yeah, I was blessed big time very early on. And uh, I've always been full of gratitude just because that's how my life started. You went to Indiana, Pennsylvania for a while, right? And then on to Steubenville, Ohio. He was working his way up, payroll guy, uh, a personnel guy, got his first store in Indiana, PA, uh, as, as a manager in downtown Indiana. 
And so I lived there from approximately age two till 11. Then in 1977, got the word that he was being transferred to a little bigger store in Steubenville, Ohio. So that was a very tough move. Indiana PA was, you know, obviously home to Jimmy Stewart. And it was just a, just a perfect place to be a young kid, especially in the 70s growing up. It's wiffle ball every day. I lived down the street from the Little League field. Every time someone hit a home run, they would ring a bell, and I could hear the bell in my bedroom sometimes for the late-night games that went on. And uh, to play under the lights was always a big deal. So you could ride your bike all the way around town. Um, it was just a cool place, college town with IUP. So that was just, it was heartbreaking when I moved to Steubenville, but that, that ended up being just a, a really cool place to live for eight more years. Just so many characters. What a history that place with Dean Martin, Jimmy the Greek, uh, just loads of funny people, really blue collar, still mill town. And then after, while I was in college, my dad got one more transfer up in the Warren Youngstown area. And then soon after that, he retired, moved back to Boston. I graduated from college the same year he did that. So I went back to Boston with him to look for my first job in TV. Had he stayed in Pennsylvania or Ohio, I probably would have lived at home with them for those first couple of years and looked for a job in Johnstown or Youngstown or, or something like that. But they went back. So I went back with them to uh, start the TV career. Great stuff. Um, when you were in Steubenville, were you a Pittsburgh sports fan uh, in, in Indiana as well. Did you get to Pittsburgh much to see Pirates or Steelers or Penguins games? Oh, yeah. Indiana was uh, you know, obviously an hour away from Pittsburgh. Steubenville, actually a little closer to Pittsburgh. It's a very short drive. You could actually live there and commute. Uh, now it's like 40 minutes away with the new bridge they put in West Virginia. So it's uh, it was very much so. I grew up with Pittsburgh local news, obviously, 2, 4, and 11. I was a big news junkie at a young age. I knew what I wanted to do. I noticed everything as a kid. I noticed graphics and music when they made a set change. I noticed all that stuff as a very, at a very young age. And so, yeah, my dad was a real good athlete, played in the Army, football and baseball, and then got out of the Army to help pay for college and then played semi-pro football in a very, really good league in Boston called the Park League. This is before the Patriots got there. They play in front of 10,000 fans. He won five championships, an MVP trophy playing in Fenway Park where the title game was played back then in the 50s. So he loved football, very ultra-competitive. So he got Steelers season tickets when they played in Pitt Stadium when they were terrible in the 60s. And then so by the time they get to Three Rivers and they're this juggernaut, he is 50-yard line halfway up lower level in Three Rivers because he had, he had gotten the ticket so long ago. Uh, at Pitt Stadium, so uh, so yeah, I grew up a just a diehard Steeler fan. I would grow up, I would get up nauseous on Sunday mornings waiting for the game. <laughs> every game was life or death, every game. And my dad was he could fix everything around the house, huge toolbox, building shelves, all kinds of stuff. And he would have you know pirate games on the radio when he did that on the weekends. And I would be with him, you know, right there at his hip, listen to Bob Prince and pirate games in the seventies at a young age. Just when I would be five, six, seven, eight, nine, he'd say, John, he always had a thick Boston accent. John, go get me a beer. He had Iron City beer. And he would even have, even at a young age, five, six, seven, eight, I would that pop top that you peeled off. Hope not to slice off a finger. And always always he always let me take that first sip, even at a young age. And I can still taste that ice cold beer on a hot summer day. We had no air conditioning in our and in our cinder block house in Indiana PA, two nine oh Olive Street. It was hot and I would take that first sip and I remember that first cold crisp and I'm not even a beer drinker now, but back then I can still taste that beer. And it, it was so delicious. So, yeah, I was at my dad's hip with Pirates. And we would go. He, he had season tickets. I'd go to maybe one game a year. And, yeah, we go to Pirate games, probably three to five Pirate games a year, and then probably two to four Penguin games a year when the Bruins when, would come in town or maybe when he would get tickets from somebody would go see a game. So, yeah, I was a huge uh, 
sports fan, and, and Pittsburgh is obviously my hub. Three River Stadium, Civic Arena, those are my boyhood home athletic structures, and it's just amazing uh, that they're gone. You know, we do that in this country. The, the Roman Coliseum is still up, but we tear down sports <laughs> arenas in our, in our country, and, and they're gone. Like my, my, The place of my childhood memories are gone. They're vapor. They're dust. And that's that's the only one sad part about being a sports fan for our age is you know outside of Fenway Park and Wrigley Field you know they're all gone they just they just vaporize and for a minute there it looked like Iron City beer was going to be gone but it's back in a big way <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he would then shift to IC Light in the eighties I never quite had the taste for IC Light like in the old Iron City <laughs> it's, it's so funny you bring that up because I, I I actually remember that too tasting that beer it seemed like that was the beer that my your relatives had in the house. My dad didn't drink, but my aunt did. And I remember tasting that beer and it was very bitter. Like Iron City beer, you know, compared to other beers, is a pretty strong flavor. And that's, if that's your first taste of beer, it's it's significant. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't, I was, I wasn't testing beers at age eight. That was the only one I had. <laughs> so you were into sports, you were into television sports. So who were the sports casters that you thought were cool? Like, do you remember the front four on channel four with, my brother, Myron Cope, Stan Saverin, and Bill Hillgrove, or would, would that just be a Absolutely. So, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, obviously, I grew up on the radio listening to Bob Prince on the radio and then whatever was on TV, mainly national games, occasionally, obviously, a local pirate game. But also, my dad was obviously come from Boston. He kept his Bruins allegiance because they had gotten Bobby Orr and they were winning Stanley Cups in 1970 and 1972. And so I listened, we listened, he listened to Bruins games on WBZ radio, which came in as clear as if it was in Altoona. Bob I mean, Wilson. that's how clear it was. Yeah, Bob Wilson was just this big, booming baritone. You could tell he was just pounding scotches and smoking Winston <laughs> Reds all day. And that, and that voice was just John Wayne on the radio. And I grew up with that. And, and hockey was on the radio was just, you could paint this picture. And to me, it always had a gothic look. It was that organ. It was blood. It was violence. It was like going to church on Sundays to me because you had the organ, you had church, you had a guy on the cross up there. It was, you know, it was a violent <laughs> background. So the going to church was violent. Hockey was violent. So I always kind of, I married hockey and church. I felt they had the same vibe with the organ and, and, the, and the violence. And it was just theatrical and it was amazing. And I, so I kind of invented hockey in my brain, listening to the, the game on the radio. And then when I, and I watched, like I see, yeah, I watched local news. I always was always a channel four guy for some reason. And uh, yeah, obviously Myron Cope and Steve's a brisky. I remember when he came on the scene. Oh yeah. Big Z. Like this, Great they, guy. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I remember they, they changed their voices where they had Steve talked with Myron's voices and, and Myron talked with Steve voice for this little promo spot when he first came there. And uh, it, that, that has stuck with me when it, ever since this day, but yeah, you would, and obviously, um, you know, your brother was really a quirky, interesting, different kind of broadcaster. He was almost like the David Letterman of early sportscasters. He just wasn't your normal, hi, how you doing there, voicey guy. You know, he no, just, and he, he made a real effort to not be that guy, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Exactly, and, and that really resonated with me. And, uh, and, and, that, and, and that made a big impact on me. Then obviously when David Letterman came along, I became, especially guys of my generation, Letterman was the same way. And so that kind of, I think, really, really made a big impression. I still respected Dick Enberg. I was a big NBC sports guy because the Steelers were on NBC and the picture always seemed way more clear than the CBS picture for some reason. And I just loved everything about him. And he made everything, he always smiling. He made it sound big and exciting. So I kind of took that from him, his huge passion 
Um, but so, yeah, so I, I was like a big melting pot, not only, you know, literally where I came from in Pittsburgh, but as I took little things from all these people that I enjoyed to, to you know, subconsciously, I wasn't thinking about my my style. I, I was just having fun. But obviously those people seep into your subconscious. So you end up going to Heidelberg University in Tiffin, Ohio, and I assume there were a lot of Cleveland Browns fans around you at that time. But I, I want to kind of jump through that quickly because we, we don't want to keep you all day, and I could for sure. You're so much fun to listen to and talk to. But, you know, what amazes me, John, is that you are a great hockey play-by-play announcer. Like, you, that, you, you're really good at it. And I just wonder oh. where, where you got experience doing it before you suddenly found yourself doing it at a pretty high level. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, my dad gave me a tape recorder when I was 11, 12 years old, and that's when my life really, really became this creative thing and around watching television and loving music and watching sports. And, and I would turn the sound down and broadcast these games on TV and went during my teenage years, uh, which, by the way, girls just love. If you want to get girls, get a tape recorder and broadcast sports in your living room. <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe they so, yeah, like it so more now college. than they did before, but I, I, get, I get your drift. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. I did not have many dates my teenage years, but so I would just turn down, I would broadcast, and I'd listen. Like, I'm an observational learner, and I'm, I'm, and I'm one of those guys who, who sees and feels everything, which is when you're an adult, you can manage that, but when you're a kid and you feel everything, it, it can be really difficult. Uh, you really just, you're smashed. Your emotions are smashed all the time. Uh, so you, you, you kind of withdraw and you spend time alone. And so I was doing this broadcasting and notices and I would get another tape recorder. I, I remember for Christmas and I'd be, I played music in that one. And I would like DJ and, and make up these things. I once made an entire imaginary baseball game using sound effects, the whole nine inning game during the strike year. When I was 14 years old, I got the sound effect of a baseball hitting the bat and crowd noise. I mapped out the game on a scorebook. I, it was a Red Sox Yankees playoff game. And, uh, and I did the whole thing. And, uh, and so I, I was always uh, really creating and producing at a, at a, at a very young age. And, uh, and so that's, that really, I knew as I get closer to college, I wanted to pick a place that had a TV station, radio station, school newspaper, and I could continue this media kind of uh, fascination and obsession that I was on with that kind of music always kind of there in the background. So, yeah, to, to, to just never do it. But I never did a hockey game until we lost hockey at ESPN in 2004. And two years later, um, I went to them and said, hey, is there any chance I could do one of those NCAA regional games that we do? All we did was the NCAA tournament. And, uh, and they said, yeah, sure. I was like, oh, awesome. I see it because they wouldn't have to pay me. It's just, you know, I would just go do it as part of my contract, part of a work day. I would drive. They're all close to ESPN. They're in Connecticut, New Hampshire. And so, yeah, so they, just, they just let me do that, thankfully. And then that started probably about 12, 11 years ago, probably. And I probably did it four or five years before my contract was up, and I asked them, "Hey, I'd like to be the I'd like to be the voice. I'd like to do the Frozen Four, and I'd like, and I'd like to put it in my contract just to make sure I, that I did it." And and, uh, and they agreed, and then I, and I started doing the Frozen Four, and perfectly enough, my very first Frozen Four was in Pittsburgh. I mean, the place I was born, the place right up the street when I was born, the place where I would listen to Bob Wilson on the radio. I'd go to Civic Arena when I'd hear my friends, you know, say it's a hockey night in Pittsburgh, not mm. knowing about hockey night in Canada. And so, and here I am doing the national championship game between Yale and Quinnipiac in Pittsburgh, the place I was born, uh, you know, 40 years after uh, it all kind of started. So that was just a, a, an interesting coincidence, a perfect place for me to kind of start this, what I hope is the next phase of my life. And that's hockey play-by-play. I think it's phenomenal. You're really good at it. ESPN, uh, they may get a portion of the NHL package back, so that might give you that opportunity. Are you sort of thinking that that could happen for you? Is that what you're 
hoping for? That's what I'm, that's what I'm dreaming. Yeah, for sure. You know, like I said, I've done frozen seven frozen fours. Now the eighth will be in Detroit in April. And yeah, you're right. The, the hockey, uh, the networks can open up bidding about this time next year. Cause it'll be the last year of the NBC deal. So, uh, so yeah, so the you know, networks will make their bids and I'm sure ESPN will make one. I don't know what their stomach is. Um, for it, how deep they want to go and, and how much they want to take on, like you said, whether they partner with someone. I'm sure there'll be multiple partners this time. Um, in the past, the network could afford the whole package, but the rights will go up, and there's other rights as well. And ESPN obviously is a strong streaming presence with ESPN Plus, and and so uh, so yeah. So I really hope this time next year the bidding will start, and probably January or February of next year we'll know if we get a piece. So that would be, uh, yeah, that would be a great transition. I would still love to do the college hockey frozen four for another five to seven years for sure. And, um, and then our couple of regular season games that we do, we're doing two games in Wisconsin in January, which is going to be fun going to Madison. So I still would like to do the frozen four uh, around, but if I could then add the NHL, that would just be, man, that would be a perfect way to kind of do the last, you know, like I said, last chapter of my career, another 10 years, what a dream. One of the things you said in your commencement speech is that when you got the opportunity to do college hockey, you felt it was your you know, more or less uh, obligation to really embrace college hockey and learn as much as you could about it. If you were going to do the Frozen Four, you certainly had to know, know what was happening throughout the season leading up to it. So you've become a real expert on college hockey and a guy who has totally immersed himself in it, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I, right. I, I, it's uh, you know what it is when in some sports when you can't speak the language and just really screams at you, whether it's a soccer fan or whether it's a hockey fan, they know the difference. And so, yes, yeah, so I really wanted to make sure because I, I I didn't grow up with college hockey. There was no college hockey in Pittsburgh. All the towns I lived in, my first Frozen Four was when I worked in Providence, Rhode Island. That was my second job before I got to ESPN. I was there for two years, and they happened to host the Frozen Four. And I just I love. I couldn't believe all these fans wearing sweaters of teams that weren't even there. They go every year. They go to the Frozen Four, whether their team is there or not. It, it's an annual pilgrimage. It still goes on today. And so I just really and there were bands in the crowd. There were doubleheader Thursday championship game Saturday, and I and I loved it. And then, of course, eventually later, uh, 10 years later, I start doing the, the play-by-play myself at ESPN once we lost the NHL package. So, yeah, so I, I really wanted to make sure. That's why I do the poll on Twitter just for me to research each team. And there's 60 D1 hockey teams. And, and uh, usually at the course of a year, there's 30, 30 to 35 pretty good ones. So I follow along. I go to games and whatever I can in New England. I'm very fortunate. There's a bunch of rinks near me within an hour, a two-hour drive. I can get to 10 to 15 uh, college arenas and five to seven NHL arenas. So, yeah, I really want to make sure. That I, I get I, to give it the respect it deserves too, because I would watch college hockey play by play, and the, and the play by play guys would use like three or four names, the same guys the entire broadcast. It didn't take time to learn the names, and I want to make sure if a parent is watching in Canada or if they're watching in Michigan and their son is a fifth and sixth defenseman, I want to make sure I say their name a couple of times, a D to D pass coming out of their zone, and you know just to, so they can hear their son's name on TV. So you're going to hear your son's name on TV if if he's playing in a college hockey game that, that I'm doing. Um, and, you know, I, I think that you also probably got as close to the NHL as, as you have gotten to this point when you did the World Cup games. And there's one overtime in particular that I heard that's just phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> and it's a great overtime call by you. And the amount of passion and excitement that's coming through your voice to me is so genuine. And it's what makes and to me separates the great hockey announcers from the other ones. And you have that in you. And it just came through so cleanly on that particular Overtime. Daniel Sadiq save by Gibson. Wow. 
The former Kitchener Ranger, John Gibson with the save. Back comes McKinnon. Control. Johnny Control. No. Here comes Sedin again. Control in front. McKinnon all by himself. Nathan McKinnon. Score. Sweden game against that North American team that was really they, 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 a cool team, and it was gaining momentum, especially after that win. Nathan McKinnon, Connor McDavid, Johnny Gaudreau, you know, just an awesome team. And I don't think they were too sure because they want to include these kids because Canada couldn't keep all of them. USA couldn't keep all their players. So they created this this young North American team, and, and so they're playing that game against Sweden. I'm with Darren Pang to my right, who is just my kind of guy, like a passionate guy who just loves life. Those are the kind of people I love to be around. And uh, Kevin Weeks was between the benches. We see him on NHL Network, another guy who just loves life. And so just really caught up with it. Yeah, that was the only time I've called games with NHL players. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I, I try not to go too out of control. I want to be measured. I just don't want to be screaming lunatic, but it is, it is very natural, and I do like to, you know, I, that's the way I want to do it. I, you got to do it your way and what makes you comfortable, the kind of person you are. And I just do love the game. It brings so much out of me. My boys both played, and I miss watching them. I built them a backyard rink uh, once they started playing, which, and those memories are amazing uh, to, to go out there and skate in your backyard all day long and skate with your boys from age four up until high school seniors. So, yeah, the game just does something. It's a blood sport. Um, it, it grabs you and it doesn't let you go. And it's just, uh, I just love it. How about how much the NHL has grown? I know th- there were people who really kind of looked sideways when the league left ESPN and went to versus, but little did they know it's kind of like the NHL uh, stepped in mud and came out wearing a brown suit. I mean, they ended up getting versus turning into NBC, which really put, put them right in the driver's seat to have a major network, you know, married to them. And the league has grown amazingly since that time, has it not? And and I know ESPN has maintained some coverage of the NHL. It's not like you completely ignore it. But the league has gotten so much more successful. That might be one of the reasons why ESPN is thinking about jumping back in. For sure. I mean, it's a great sport. It's a great demographic. It's young people with men and women who love the sport. Um, that's definitely part of it. Certainly, we got out of it. And I, I wish you know, the current president at the time, who's no longer in the Disney organization, I just wish I could have let him know. I wish he would have taught. I go, there's this guy named Sidney Crosby who's going to show up after the lockout. There's this guy named Alex Ovechkin who's going to show up after the lockout. You can get this thing cheap now. Do a, do a 10-year deal. Do a 15-year deal. Everything is changing. All this grab and, and slow hockey that we've been watching with low ratings and not very exciting, um, it, it, I'm telling you, you the, the future's on the way. And, of course, like I said, post-lockout, here comes Crosby, here comes Ovechkin. And then ever since then, just wave after wave, the world is just producing amazing hockey players in the U.S., in Canada. What Sweden is doing in Finland in terms of their population size, they understand how you train hockey players. You're better off practicing more than you play and small area games. And now we're just producing Every year, there's just this huge generational talent, Matthews and Kane and Taves and, and, and obviously McDavid and Eichel. They're just coming, coming and coming and coming year after year. So the league is so fast. 
so entertaining. And Gary Bettman really does have did a great job. He's obviously the only commissioner the league has ever had. They didn't have one before. He really professionalized the New York office and really made it a 21st century organization. It was now many people miss the 80s in the wild, wild west, and I get it. It was fun and it was crazy and it was unbelievable. But to get where they were now in terms of the world and how it works and corporations and 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 creating that revenue, he really has professionalized it and brought it to different places like Nashville. And it's worked some places and it hasn't worked in others. But you know, you see in Nashville and Columbus, and you produce NHL fans with NHL teams. And that's what and that's what I love expansion on pro expansion. I think there's enough players for five more teams. And that's how you create fans. Hey, look what it did in Pittsburgh. Look what it's done in Dallas. Look what it's done in Columbus and Nashville. That's how you make NHL fans or with NHL teams. Bucci, they let you be you on ESPN. That's one thing. I mean, you uh, are a national broadcaster. You talked earlier in this discussion about, you know, not being like my brother being different. You're different. And uh, and in that respect, uh you're like a more local guy that you know people can kind of attach themselves to as opposed to just a talking head on television. And you've really gained a tremendous following. You have 500,000 followers or so on Twitter. Um, and how is that for you to be able to just kind of be yourself and do all these quirky things like wear college hockey jerseys on the set and your, <laughs> your bucket of chicken challenge and the various things that you've in college hockey that you've gotten involved with? It must be really cool to be able to just be you. It is. Yeah, I appreciate you for saying that. Like I said, people like your brother, like I said, David Letterman, these people just did things a little bit different. For some reason, that's kind of the, the people that uh, I was attracted to. And the, I, uh, I really do got a hand at the ESPN. They've never said how to dress, how to wear your hair, what to say. We, we're given complete freedom on SportsCenter. We all have our own voices. We write our own scripts. I think people, not, not everyone realizes that. I would think they should realize it when they watch Chris Berman or Stuart Scott or Kenny Maine or myself. Obviously, no one else is writing our stuff because it's all so different. And uh, that's been the great part about working at a place like that is they just let you go. And part of it is we do so much stuff. They don't have time to micromanage and look because <laughs> there's another, there's another show to go. So that's the good part. If you do something great, you don't really get any notice, which is fine. I don't need, I don't really take compliments well, so that's fine. But if you mess up once in a while, they don't know. They, they got to move on. We, we don't have time to think about that. So uh, um, unless you swear, unless you drop an f bomb on the air, you just you just go next show. Let's go. And so no, but it's been a great place to work that way. And uh, and and I got to say that's the strength of the place. Every big corporation has strengths and weaknesses, but the strength of that place has always been they let you have your own voice. And I think um, there are a lot of people who are real happy that you got a new contract there because there were a lot of people who were let go and. And you weren't one of them, but I understand you were a little bit concerned that you might be one of those guys. Sure. I mean, my contract was up. It was so, you know, some people who they let go had three years left on their contract. So they just kept paying them. Everything was the same. They kept that bad benefits, their 401k, and, and they just didn't come to work. That's the only thing that changed. Every two weeks, they got their paycheck. So my contract was coming up. So I was thinking, well, you know, I'm 50 years old, and, and uh, they wouldn't have to pay me to let me go. The timing would be, you know, fine. And I get it. There's a lot of people like me. I'm nothing that special. So, uh, I was like, you know, but I was kind of glad that I kind of thought that because I was kind of handling it pretty well. It's like, you know, I don't define myself as as an ESPN guy. I'm just a guy, and 
and uh, I got three great kids. And so I, I get another job. Someone would hire me, you know, somewhere, and it didn't matter where it would be. If I had to go do, go back to Pittsburgh and be a weekend sports anchor, I'd do that. That would have been a blast. I'd have fun with that. So it's like uh, I was fine. So I was kind of glad I handled it that way. I wasn't like, oh my God, what do I do if I don't work at ESPN anymore? What will people think of me? It's like oh, I'll be fine. But yeah, thankfully they they re up me to five years, and then and then uh, recently my contract had a couple years left, and I went to them and actually looked to scale back. So I'm actually working a little bit less now, added some play-by-play as I hope to make that transition we talked about to do more play-by-play. And uh, so if we do get the NHL back in two years, hopefully, boom, I can make that full transition where I'm just covering hockey and, and maybe do some other stuff that they might want to do. Maybe it's some podcasts and some written, some blogs and some maybe create like a hockey community page or something for, on ESPN Plus and, and do some fun stuff or with the sport and really celebrate the sport as it comes back on, uh, hopefully ESPN. I think that I think it really I think that would provide a jolt to the fan base and to the players that oh cool you know I think NBC's done a great job and obviously uh, but if, if, if it, I think it would be good for the sport too and if it would, I think it would give a little bit of a jolt. Not a big deal, but just a little bit. I agree, and uh, I can just say this: I can listen to you for for two minutes, and I think that you have a chance. Or you, or you would be a very very successful and popular hockey announcer in this country if you got that opportunity. Bucci, before you go, I'd be remiss in not asking you about your diet. There you were at that commencement speech in, two, <laughs> in 2017. You did a little theme of a superhero theme, which was I thought was really cool. And at the end of the speech, you stripped down, you took your, your clothes off, and underneath you were wearing a superhero outfit that was rather form-fitting, I would say. And it's just I couldn't, I couldn't imagine anybody else doing that uh, unless they were in very good shape. And you are in phenomenal physical shape. And I even asked you down in Steubenville when we met about your diet because I wanted to know right away why a guy your age looks so good and what you eat or don't eat. And uh, so if you could, just for the benefit of the folks out there who may be looking for a way to try to trim down, maybe give them a, a little bit of a picture of what your diet is on a daily basis. It's all steroids and human growth hormones. <laughs> Morning, noon, and night. No, uh, well, you know, yeah, that, that, that outfit I wore at my commencement address you're talking about, I did a Sports Center commercial. This is Sports Center commercial, those great commercials that many grew up with that was so great to be a part of. I did one with Shaq and David Ortiz. This one was kind of a play on the Oregon football uniforms, all the different uniforms they wear. So the, the genesis of the 32nd spot was – ESPN, we, we need to start thinking about the future, and and so it was it was all these it was this suit, and then it, it, the punchline was me and Steve Levy at the end wearing these. They're basically you know what those scuba divers or surfers in cold water wear, and yeah, they're tight, and they and they had a they form fitted and, and a little Sports Center logo, so it was for that spot, and we're doing Sports Center wearing those things because it's the future and, and everything. So that that was that that's where the uniform came from, but. But yeah, I just you know I've been I'm pretty good genetics. I've always never had too much problem with you know in terms of weight and a decent little high school athlete. But I really got into a no sugar kick a couple years ago and read about it a lot. I've always liked fitness. You know, it's kind of a whole part of being athletics and being in athletics is you know is the fitness side of things and and uh, I think the players kind of respect that part when you know that side of what they go through. But so yeah, so first to start with no sugar stuff and then really I, I eat a lot of meat now. It's just a lot of a lot of meat, very low carbs. You know, I don't eat bread. I get my cheeseburgers. I eat the cheeseburger. I just don't eat the bread. And I have steak and eggs and fish and cheese, and, and I just try to cut out as much sugar as I can. I, my energy is good. I feel great. And uh, I'm just a, it's something I've done for a couple of years now, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in it. And, uh, and, and that's, a, that's how I think we became really humans. Was when we started eating meat, our brains got bigger, and it's filled with nutrients that people don't realize. And it's been I, I don't get sick. I don't get colds. I feel great. 
And um, I could drop dead tomorrow. I could get hit by a truck tomorrow, but I feel great today, Paul. <laughs> and I'll tell you something. <laughs> you, If you wanted to just, like, create your own, the Bucci Gras diet, you could do it and probably I make a, a, whole, a, a millions, I would I would bet. You could. You, maybe you should. <laughs> I'm serious. Maybe you and should. Then yeah, and then, that, and then I'll buy the Pirates and we'll take over, Shaggy. Let's go. <laughs> Sounds good to me, man. Hey. <laughs> Bucci, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, enjoy the rest of your time down there in Florida, and we're looking forward to seeing you on the tube and also hearing you call hockey games. No, I miss you. Uh, I miss you calling Penguin games, Paul. You just were awesome to listen to during those Glory Cup years, and your brother as well. So the, the Steigerwell name uh, has had a huge impact on me in my life, and it's been an honor talking to you. Hey, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Peace. Our thanks again to John Butchergrass of ESPN. I'm Paul Steigerwald, and we'll talk to you next time on It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk.